not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my recently released poetry collection The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. More specifically today, I'm holding space for your questions, because this is a question and answer episode, also a follow-up episode to some things that came up in some earlier episodes. So I'll start right off by following back to a few weeks ago on uh, the interview I did with Margaret, Season 8, Episode 21. In Margaret's story, I asked if any listeners had experience uh, in the medical community with what it is that nurses and doctors are taught about alcohol addiction, alcohol use disorder, and the whole process, what to do if someone comes to them talking about their problems, uh, just what is it that they learn. And I did hear back from a couple of listeners. So first from Megan, who wrote via Instagram, uh, who, by the way, is recently celebrating a year alcohol-free. So congratulations, Megan. That's awesome. And she says that she's been a nurse for eight years and decided at one month to follow her passion and become a family nurse practitioner specifically to work on this issue after graduation. She says, we didn't learn much about addiction in nursing school and not even in my master's program. There's not a lot of content covering how to deal with patients and substance abuse, use or misuse. And I'd like to be part of that change for the future. Thank you for speaking about this and for being a positive influence in my life. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much, Megan. And I am thinking it is absolutely wonderful that you're pursuing this area. Fantastic for your future patients who will benefit from your expertise and your passion about recovery, as well as your personal experience. Uh, Also, a message from Carolyn, who wrote to say that she listened to Margaret's story on her walk and was pleased to write in (laughs) and give her feedback because she is a family nurse practitioner with many years of experience in many different healthcare settings. And she says, I'd like to briefly provide my experiences as to why providers don't address alcohol during visits. Personally, I don't believe that we aren't taught is the mentality is a reason good enough for not addressing any issue. In my profession, if you don't know, look it up. Anyone could ask Dr. Google for help with virtually anything. The majority of clinicians have up-to-date information and everyone knows the two letters, AA. Unlike many patients, Margaret was honest in asking if drinking an entire bottle of wine every night was a problem. It is completely reprehensible that neither physician addressed the issue. So she's talking about Margaret's episode where she asked her doctor if it was okay and the doctor kind of blew her off and said she was fine. Carolyn goes on to say, I've worked in family practice offices where NPs, nurse practitioners, were given a bit more time with patients than the MDs, than the doctors, and sometimes allowing us to spend time addressing issues of concern that popped up at the last minute. We commonly refer to these as the doorknob, oh, by the way, questions. You gently close the door, check the clock quickly, take a deep breath, sit down and say, tell me more about XYZ. Your entire schedule is now shot. The rest of the patients will spend the first few valuable minutes complaining about the wait. And when they do, I gently let them know that they too might need a few extra minutes sometime and I will provide it. At the end of the day, you've provided something valuable to someone who you thought came in only for a sore throat. Uh, That is so lovely that you do that, and 
Uh, I actually did it just this week with my doctor. I threw him a, oh, by the way, hand on the doorknob question. He was really good about it. Okay, uh, back to Carolyn's letter here. Reimbursement practices established by ve various federal agencies require a set of questions to be asked and addressed regardless of the reason for the visit or the type of office in order to receive reimbursement. So we're talking about the medical system in the United States, and it will differ a little bit. I know we have listeners in numerous different countries. Uh, thus, the interpersonal violence and safety questions, helmet, seatbelt, smoking, firearms, mental health, exercise, alcohol, etc. questions. Admitting to having an alcohol use disorder takes bravery and a level of trust that often only happens a few minutes into a visit. If the provider appears rushed or more focused on the laptop for note-taking than the patient, the patient won't answer the questions honestly or raise the issue themselves. So we have to spend precious minutes asking all the questions and then provide as much information as quickly as possible depending on the response. Positive response should result in a screeching, let's stop for a minute and talk about this. And then we still have to get to the reason for the visit and the information required for reimbursement. There's tremendous pressure to see a certain number of patients per session per day in order to meet expenses and to receive a bonus, and this can mean a 15-minute appointment times for certain types of visits to 45 to 60 minutes for a physical. If you go over, your other patients will suffer and wait. You have to focus on the priority for the visit. At some point, your practice administrator will confront you for spending too much time with your patients and you adjust your practice or leave the practice. My most recent experience was in retail health. I was penalized for providing excellent care to my patients, whom I had gotten to know well over the years of working with them. I had to leave for this reason. Anyway, these are some of the reasons why alcohol isn't always addressed adequately or appropriately by healthcare providers. After untold years, I finally fessed up to my psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner that I was concerned about my alcohol use, and he non-judgmentally has been working with me through my process. So thank you very much, Caroline, for that insight. And, you know, that's something that is hard for those of us who aren't in the industry to really understand is that on a, in addition to all of the expertise that we are seeking with our mental health providers, there's also the issue of them having to manage the business side of their medical practice, and that can be pretty darn tricky. So thank you for that. And anyone else who is a listener that has some insight on the experiences of being in the health profession, what you learn about alcohol use disorder, um, what you're taught about it and how you're taught to respond. I'd be really interested to hear about that. I guess I want to say thank you <laughs> for those of you that are like Megan and Carolyn and, and use your experience to benefit your patients. That's really fantastic. Okay, well, this is an Ask Me Anything episode, so I threw out on uh, Facebook and Instagram that today I was taking questions and would be recording the answers to it, and so I am definitely happy to do that here. I'm just going to check and see if there's any new ones that have come in before I get down to it. So the first question comes from Instagram. So the first question that came in is actually about OCD. So this question comes from Lucy, who says, how can I stop picking my scalp? It is literally a constant thing. I have OCD. Is it something you can ever recover from? Is it a form of self-harm? Thank you. So the bubble hour is about alcohol use disorder. Yes, it's about truth-telling. And part of my truth-telling and my story as a person in recovery has been to share with you guys something that's really hard for me to talk about, and that is a condition I have called excoriation disorder. Uh, it is a form of OCD. It's in the category known as BFRB, which means body-focused repetitive behaviors. And as Lucy shares, uh, you know, I'm not the only one. In fact, this disorder affects about 5% of the population. So that's one in every 20 people. So is it OCD? Well, kind of. 
A body-focused repetitive behavior, it's a general term for a group of related disorders that includes hair pulling, skin picking, and nail biting. So most people do one of these things, not all three of them. They're not habits or tics. They're complex disorders that cause people to repeatedly touch their hair and body in ways that result in physical damage. So hair pulling disorder, uh, the big name for that is trichotillomania. And that causes people to pull out the hair from their scalp, eyelashes, eyebrows, or other parts of their body. Most people choose one or two uh, areas of their body and focus on it. Another one is excoriation disorder, which is the skin picking disorder. So uh, that causes people to repetitively touch, rub, scratch, pick at, or dig at their skin, resulting in skin discoloration, scarring, and even severe uh, tissue damage and disfigurement. So that excoriation disorder is the form that I have. I've had it since I was an adolescent. Um, in fact, really, if you look at pictures of me from my childhood, my ankles are just complete scabs. And my mom used to say, oh, you must have had mosquito bites. You were always scratching at your legs. But the fact was, uh, I really think that it was an early form of this disorder. And as I got older, I became aware that people noticed the sores on my legs. And so I transferred the behavior to um, an unnoticeable area of my scalp. And so, yeah, I scratch at my scalp. Now, what's the difference between that and just someone who's just itchy? It's it's more than that. It goes to the point where it takes up a lot of time. It is uh, a form of self-soothing, but also it causes damage or causes uh, problems in your life. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Other BFRBs include uh, nail biting disorder. So people bite their nails past the nail bed, chew on the cuticles until they bleed. And there's also uh, cheek and lip biting, nail picking, and other self-grooming behaviors. So this actually came up in an online group. Someone mentioned it and just asked if anyone else suffered from it. And there was a huge thread that ensued of people commenting that, yes, they suffered from it as well. So I'm going to just dig a little bit deeper on this. So the information I'm sharing with you comes from an incredible website called bfrb.org. So that stands for Body Focused Repetitive Behavior.org. And there is a wealth of knowledge here. And in particular, there's a document that you can download. It's called the Expert Consensus Treatment Guidelines. And... It is a really great PDF that has a ton of information and resources about this disorder. So Lucy asked, is it a form of self-harm? Is it OCD? Is it something you can recover from? Well, so the website asks, is it OCD? And they are similar, and they're sort of under the same umbrella. The DSM-5 does classify BFRBs, body-focused repetitive behaviors, as uh, obsessive, compulsive, and related disorder. But um, they are also different in many ways. Um, some people assume that hair pulling and skin picking is a sign of some unresolved issue or problem that needs to be addressed before it can get better, but new studies suggest that they're not actually an indication of deeper issues or unresolved trauma. So this is a new turn in the understanding of this, this diagnosis. And when I've talked about this my experience with this on earlier shows, I have said, you know, it's a form of OCD and um, it is uh, was commonly thought of as repressed rage that's turned inward towards ourself. So new evidence is suggesting that that's not necessarily true. Is it a form of self-mutilation? Those who engage in BFRBs do so to relieve stress or to experience gratification or other sensations. This is in contrast to those who self-mutilate to intentionally harm, punish, or attempt to distract themselves from intolerable emotions. So... The BFRBs do not appear to be a form of self-mutilation, but rather are separate and distinct disorders. So that's interesting, too, because that is um, new information. So that's basically 
what it's about. How it's treated is generally psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, habit reversal training, um, in-person talk therapy, monitoring. So I live in a community that's not that big, and there isn't anyone in my community who is able to treat this. I would have to drive two hours to the nearest treatment center, and of course during COVID these things aren't happening like they used to. Um, there may be some online support cropping up these days. That could definitely be. What I have done to work on my own is basically I use uh, fake nails. So I use acrylic nails with tips. I always have my nails done. And the reason for that is that when you put that coating over your nail that they use in the salons, it makes your nails thicker and duller. And so I cannot excoriate or scratch uh, in a way that will hurt myself. So during COVID, when everything was closed and I could not get my nails done, uh, I, after a few weeks, you know, removed my nails and thought, well, we'll see how this goes. I kept my nails really short and filed down so that they were as dull as possible. And I can tell you that after a few weeks of isolating, even though we were doing well and I wasn't super stressed and I was handling the pandemic changes in my life quite well, I still had a terrible recurrence of this and my symptoms escalated to the point of being really disruptive in my life and it was actually shocking to me how bad it got and how much time it took up. So I thought, well, this is interesting. Now I felt like, you know, maybe we need to do something here because COVID was a good example where I thought I had the solution to this, you know, keep your nails done and it's fine. And then COVID came along and I couldn't do that. And I wondered if there might be other times in my life when I won't have access to this sort of behavior modification that I've developed, which is keeping my nails done. So I'm now trying hypnosis to see if this helps. And I'm working with a hypnotherapist who is doing everything she can to understand uh, my disorder. And uh, we're going to see how that works. And hopefully I will also be able to at some point connect with some therapy or guidance to change the behavior. There's no magic pill and darn it, you know, there's a funny thing. Those of us who become addicted to alcohol, we really like the idea of changing how we feel. <laughs> Something that can simply change how we feel. Isn't this how we got addicted to alcohol in the first place? Because it was the easy button. Um, there is no easy button for, for this, unfortunately. There is some hope with amino acid therapy that is being studied now to see if, if that helps. But as of right now, it is theory only and hasn't really proven out quite yet. But keep your ear out for that information. Hopefully something new will come that will be more helpful. My heart does go out to anyone and everyone who is suffering with this. And statistically, there's a lot of you. So this podcast has 60,000 downloads a month. And that means that there is 3,000 listeners right now who share this diagnosis or these symptoms in some way, shape, or form. So I'm talking to you. If this is affecting you, you're not alone. If you have shame about it, you are not alone. It is a disorder. It is treatable with therapy and it is fixable. And there are things you can do to get better. And there are people you can talk to who will understand. So I hope that helps you, Lucy. And again, the website is bfrb.org. It stands for Body Focused Repetitive Behavior.org. There's tons of great information there. So dig into that. I'll be hosting Mental Health Monday for She Recovers on the 27th of July at noon Mountain Time. Head over to sherecovers.co and sign up for their online meetings and you can join me. So it'll be me presenting a little bit about this and then we'll have a group discussion on this topic. So if you feel like you have a ton of shame about it, boy, being with a group is the antidote for that. So I'm really looking forward to talking with the group. And if this resonates for you, I hope you'll be there too. I think it's going to be really powerful. Again, that's the 27th of July 
uh, noon mountain and sherecovers.co is where you go to sign up for it. Okay, carrying on with some ask me anything questions. Oh, this is interesting. So here's a question. Do you take down interviews if the guest has relapsed? So I think what this means is after they appeared on the show, if they've relapsed after being interviewed on the bubble hour, do I delete their interviews? So no, the answer to that is no, I don't. I consider these interviews to be a snapshot. So if I took your picture as a snapshot of what you're like today and you changed tomorrow in some way, I wouldn't throw away your picture or delete it. I would still hang on to it and still see it as something of value. And I really don't think that our stories are dependent on perfection. I know there are a few guests, some who have come back after relapse and talked about what they learned from it. But here's the thing, you guys. Relapse is really a part of being in the recovery realm. We don't have to accept it as being, you know, essential to our own recovery or inevitable. But the fact is, it does happen. And it doesn't wipe out all of the lessons that the person has shared with us. And it doesn't, mm, it doesn't reduce their experience. It adds more to the story, for sure. But it doesn't take away the importance or the impactfulness of the story that they've shared. So anyone who's been on the show and who has suffered a relapse and a comeback is always welcome to come back and share more of their story. But definitely, I don't take their story down. Now, our founding host, Ellie, is a great example of that. If you listen to those early episodes, Ellie is just Gosh, she's an amazing woman. Ellie, if you're listening, I miss you so much. And her voice just is a bomb to the soul. But, um, you know, she relapsed after doing this show for a year or two and then took some time off and came back. And um, her story definitely did not take away from the power of everything she shared before that relapse or the truth-telling that she added afterwards. So yeah, that's how I feel about it. I'm curious to know how you guys feel about that. Feel free to reach out to me and let me know your feedback. Um, my email address, by the way, thebubblehour at gmail.com, or you can direct message me on Facebook. Let me know your thoughts on that. I'm curious to know what you think. Um, another question. Do you read all the books that you cover on the show? Yes, I do. And uh, I constantly get uh, books and messages from book publicists and authors, and I try to choose the best ones. I only limit them to a few authors, partly because I do read all their books. I think it's the least I can do, and I'm a very slow reader. <laughs> so it takes me a while to read a book. So like just in terms of manageability, I can only interview so many authors on the show. And also though, I think that there's a lot of power in trying to spread it out a little bit. I try to give a little bit of everything. So I know there's some people who want to be on the show because they do have something to promote. And as long as they have a story to go with it, you know, as long as they're here to share their story of recovery, I think it's great and fair to give them a platform to talk about, you know, their book or their services or whatever. Um, but really the heart of this story, of this show is storytelling. And so the bulk of the guests that are on the show are everyday people who volunteer to tell their story. I think it's a pretty common thing for people to celebrate a milestone by telling a story on the bubble hour. And I love that. And it can be anonymous or it can be not anonymous. Um, of course, if you're an author with a book to share, you're generally not anonymous. So so yeah, I do read all of the books and I'm grateful for it. And I, I wish that I could do five shows a week um, so that I could have more people to talk to and, and more opportunities to cover. But I think one a week is uh, as much as I can handle at this time. Mm, next question. Do you still sing? Where can I get your music? Okay. So no, <laughs> I don't still sing. Uh, you know what? So for me at least, and I think this is true for a lot of singers, um, singing is uh, a physical thing that you have to keep up. It's like almost being an athlete. You have to keep your voice in shape and your breathing and your sustainability and all of that. And um, I am terribly out of shape as a singer. And I don't even have any calluses on my fingers for playing guitar. 
And the aforementioned fake nails make playing guitar uh, hard. And so, um, yeah, I do not professionally sing or write music anymore. But the theme song to this show is a song from my one of my old albums. And you can find this that song and others. It's on iTunes and Spotify. But you have to search Jean Greer McCarthy to find it. Because at that time, I was performing using uh, my maiden name as a middle name. I get zip zip nothing not up for my music these days so um yeah i don't really get anything if you listen to it on itunes or spotify but if you like it go ahead knock yourself out that's where you'll find it this question from instagram is from rachel who asks how do you stay so inspired have you always been like that is it new since becoming sober So I think Rachel is referring to the fact, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I paint and I paint rocks and I paint pictures and I do macrame. I'm always doing something creative and I write and I've always been a creative person. That is true. What's different in sobriety is that I'm not doing it for the gold star or the trophy or for the affirmation from other people. Mm, I still do things, and I hope people like what I do, but I do it because I enjoy it, and I share it because I think it might help you or inspire you, but I'm not sharing it in that can-you-see-me-now kind of way. I find sometimes on Instagram, there's a few people I follow, they post a lot of pictures of themselves, and I feel I can see in their eyes an asking, can you see me? And not, here is me doing what I do, or here's something I've done that I enjoy, and I'm sharing it with you, but it's that searching question. So, I wonder if you can sense this as well with social media and other people or just the people in your life, the people that are doing something because they have a need to be seen and they need you to feel it for it to be real for them or to give them some kind of validation. There's something that feels kind of off about that. And for me, it feels double off because I recognize myself in it. I lived that way for most of my life. Recovery and sobriety has taught me to live differently, to live more authentically and not for other people to tell me who I am. I live to know who I am and be who I am and express that. So that's what's different. I've always been inspired and creative and it's just how I'm wired. But where it comes from and why I do it is different now. And Thank you, Rachel, for asking that question and making me think about that because that feels nice to be able to say that <laughs> and know that it's true. And also to say that when I, I'm not judging other people for how they present themselves on social media, I am seeing myself in them, I guess. I'm, wit- I'm, I'm recognizing my patterns, my, my faults in other people. And this is something we do. And what do we do when we see that? We kind of have a negative reaction to it because it's a little bit of like, is that how I came across? And maybe that's not how they come across at all to other people. And maybe it's not how they're intending it. But because it's the lens that I, my experience colors how I see things. By the way, if you sent me a message through direct messaging, I'm assuming you don't want me to say your name. So those questions I'm reading without a name. And if you questioned publicly, I'm sharing the first name of the person who asked the question. So this just popped up from Joy on Instagram who asked, do you think the pandemic will have lasting effects on the way addiction is treated? I'm thinking about virtual treatment, telehealth, online AA meetings, etc. Yes, I 100% do think so. I also think that the pandemic will possibly have a a bump in numbers who need help. I think a lot of people are suffering in isolation right now, and that concerns me a lot. 
thank goodness for the internet because it brings the information into our home. So I'm really hoping that the people who need help are able to get it. I do worry about people who are older, don't have the internet, don't have a computer. You know, my mom doesn't have a drinking problem, but she has a vision problem, so she can't see well enough. So if she needs to Google something, it's very hard for her to see her computer. So someone who's visually impaired that's struggling with alcohol or mental health issues, how are they getting it? These are very big concerns of mine right now, but I do celebrate the proliferation of online support services meetings that are occurring in response to this pandemic. It's wonderful. For me, nothing replaces in-person meetings. I miss I miss in-person meetings a lot, and I'm really looking forward to them returning. And those will be different forever. I mean, uh, we, we will be changed after this because it will be a few more months at least, if not another year. We're always changed. You know, they say it takes 21 days to make a new habit. So what we've had lots of time to make some new habits. And there's some positive things that are happening. There's just something about looking someone in the eye, sitting in the room with them, even if you're sitting in silence. And I will be very grateful when we're able to do that. So, oh, do you regret shedding anonymity? That's an interesting question too. Sometimes I do. Um, Mostly I don't. It wasn't a big deal for me because I did not get sober in a anonymous program. So my anonymity was mostly fear-based for the first few years. And when I did shed my anonymity on the blog. First, I just posted my picture and my first name. And the reason I did it was because I was always scouring for those um, stories that would pop up. They're basically clickbait that say, you know, celebrities that you didn't know were sober. And I uh, was always looking at those and I thought, well, you know, if I can just give people one more face to look at that they know is sober and see you know, who I am writing this blog. It wasn't for my ego, that's for sure. Um, It was really scary, but I felt like it was kind of taking service and accountability to a new level. So first I shared my picture and my first name, and then uh, I was contacted by uh, addiction.com and asked to be a uh, columnist for addiction.com, and so I did that for a few years, and so then I was writing using my first and last name, and then I just started, yeah, it just sort of came out more and more and more. I guess the more that it turned out that people knew who I was and people in my community, and you know, unless they're looking for recovery information, don't tend to stumble across it. And so there wasn't just a, a whole lot of overlap between my personal life and my, my online advocacy. There are some times, I guess I just have to be mindful of it. I think it can be an ego trigger. Generally, it's not for me, but I think it can be. And I do worry a little bit for people that are newly sober and super excited about it, as we tend to be, who want to evangelize and put themselves out there and make a course and do all these things. And um, there's some vulnerability that comes with that. And so I, I guess I think a lot of people are doing it really well, and I commend them. But I know for me at that stage, it might have been a little bit of a trigger or it might have been sending me back into that approval junkie performance, hustling for my worthiness. Some of the behaviors that were hand in hand with my addiction, I think they were the behaviors that caused the discomfort that my addiction was a symptom of. Like, I think I drank because my life made me uncomfortable. And the reason my life made me uncomfortable was because I was always just an approval junkie and trying to get people to approve of me and doing things for others and overachieving, never feeling satisfaction, feeling like an imposter, feeling not good about myself, and then drinking to try to soothe the discomfort of that. So for me, recovery has been about getting really grounded in my authenticity so that I'm not uncomfortable at the end of the day and I don't need to, you know, (sighs) unwind with a bottle of wine in order to be able to sleep at night. With all of that in mind, this is why I feel like being public about recovery could put a person right back into that same kind of tailspin. So I have to just work really hard on it. And the way that I do that is by knowing that 
this podcast is a great example. I mean, it's really successful. It gets great charts. I'm in the Apple mental health category on iTunes uh, consistently in the top 100. I mean, that's amazing. There's people whose full-time job is to try to get those types of numbers for their podcasts. I don't have a ton of ego about it because the show isn't about me. It's about you. It's about you as the listener, and it's about the people whose stories are being shared here. So I just don't have any ego about it. And I am honored to be part of this, but the magic of this show is definitely not me. It's the show and the space. And it's that magic that unfolds whenever people in recovery come together to tell their truth. So I take no ownership of any of that. And um, I think that's probably why shedding anonymity hasn't been a huge thing for me. I don't have a ton of regrets, except I'm just finding I don't like being on camera (laughs) as I get older. So I'm starting to shy away from the camera a little bit. Um, Another question. Are you still in touch with the other hosts? Will they be back? Uh, I do keep in touch with Ellie, Amanda, Lisa, and Catherine. Um, They are and always will be dear dear, dear friends. Um, We only knew each other online. Uh, We only met the four of us in person. Uh, Lisa wasn't there, but uh, Amanda, Catherine, Ellie, and I met a few years ago. Um, You can go back in the archives and hear that episode where we put an iPhone on the table and recorded a chat with the four of us. I think the the podcast title was Getting Unstuck. Um, that's the only time we met in person. So all of our support was online for one another. And um, and they're uh, in the eastern U.S. and I'm in western Canada. So we are on opposite sides of the continent. But we are, are always there for each other if we need one another. Um, will they be back? Only as guests. They are all have moved on in their recovery. And um, I guess the, the you would say have released with gratitude the experience of being part of this, but like all things, you know, it it runs its course in people's lives. And uh, at this point anyway, I don't know of anyone that has plans to be back. Do you miss the old group format? Yes, sometimes I do. Um, Those were really special, magical, amazing experiences. However, to coordinate the schedule of four people plus one, two, three guests um, was often really hard. And it just got to be kind of a heavy thing to manage it. The reason the show has been able to go on has just been that one guest, one host format is just a little bit more manageable and is able to keep going in the long run so that's how it is for now I love it when they come back or when they send me an audio file that I can share with you guys that's pretty special and I will always always be grateful to those amazing women for this show and for the role that they've played in my recovery Catherine is asking, how do you detach from the outcome of your creative projects? Catherine is a writer friend, and Catherine, I'm going to relate this to recovery for the purposes of this audience, but my previous experience was with writing and releasing two albums of original music that I wrote and performed. It was 2008 and 2007, so I was still in active addiction when I did those projects. And here's how it compares to writing books now, which is very similar. It's creation and writing and producing and seeing how people like it, receive it. I would compare it this way. The albums, I felt like they dragged me behind them. And I was at the mercy of the emotional roller coaster of watching the sales climb and do well and then go down again. And that happens whether you're a pop star and your albums go up, you know, to 2 million, 3 million sales and then drop back down again. Or if you're a little indie performer or indie writer like I am, where we're talking about, you know, sales in the hundreds or thousands, it doesn't matter how big the peak is. Every project, they ride it up and they ride it down again. And the ride up is thrilling and the ride down can be devastating. The experience of doing two albums before I did all this internal work and mental health stuff versus now that I'm writing books, not just about recovery, but in recovery, the music projects dragged me behind them and I was just 
sort of trying to catch up with all the emotion of it, with this experience now, you know, all these years later, and from a very different place in my heart, I am in charge of that. I'm aware of that peak and drop, and it doesn't define me, so I don't feel like I'm being dragged behind it. And I think that makes me a better creative, and I think it makes my work better. And I guess it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the question of, can you see me now? Am I dancing fast enough for you now? Versus, here's my project. It is. (laughs) Take it or don't take it. Here it is. This is my best offering, and I'm proud of this, and I feel good about this. Ta-da. The end. Um, oh, this is sweet. Do you have a favorite poem from your new book? Thanks. I appreciate you asking that. So I released a book of poetry called The Ember Ever There, uh, poems on change, grief, growth, recovery, and rediscovery. And if you've bought it, thank you so much. I hope that you love it. I hope you feel my heart in it. And um, I don't have a favorite poem in it. Every poem that's in it is there because it's my favorite. This this week I had scheduled to just be myself uh, as the only guest so that I could do some poetry readings. But I felt funny about it, so it was actually scheduled first for June, and I felt funny about doing it, so I bumped it a month, and then this week I couldn't procrastinate it any longer, and uh, so I managed to procrastinate it by taking questions instead, and now I'm at the point where I just have to open my book and read to you. (laughs) I have been doing this a little bit on Instagram as well, reading some poems on camera, she says, rolling her eyes, uh, because that's what Instagram is all about. I did something interesting in this book that is, is being really well received and there's there's different sections in the book and in one section I wrote a different poem for each of the 12 steps now you know I'm not a 12-step person that I didn't get sober using the 12 steps but people on this show who have talked about their experience in the 12 steps often have so much affection for the steps that I kind of it's given me a new perspective on what the steps are and what they mean to people that do them and I wanted to give another version of that so that people like me who don't follow the steps could get another perspective on what they mean to people. Of course because people in 12 step programs are by and large anonymous, I felt like this hasn't been done to my knowledge. If it has, let me know. <laughs> I just hadn't seen anything like this. And so I thought I would take a crack at writing a poem for each of the steps to try and explain better what each of the steps mean to people. And having interviewed 300 plus people on this show, I think I'm an informed observer of this. And as a writer, I think I have the ability to take what I've learned and observed and present it to you. That said, let me read you a poem called Surrender. Uh, And it is about the third step. So the third step in a 12-step program is to turn one's life over to a greater power. So in the first step, you agree that you're powerless. In the second step, you acknowledge there's a power greater than yourself. And then in the third step, you turn your life and presumably your addiction over to that greater power. But the other thing you'll hear in this poem is I wanted to also show some of the humor because I do go to recovery meetings now and then. And what amazes me is the humor that's in those rooms. Like it's not all serious and doom and gloom like I thought recovery was going to be. There's just so much laughter that is in recovery and when people talk about recovery. So I also wanted to capture that. Okay, surrender. Take it. Oh, wait, I'd like it back, just for a moment, while I adjust this and add to that. Take it. Oh, now, hey, I'm telling my story and need it for demonstration. I'll just... Here. All right, then, go ahead. Yes, that's better, thanks. But mm, one more thing. Well, it's mine, you see. It's who I am. It's what I do. So I'll keep it with me and let you know if I need help. That won't work. Will you at least hold it where I can see it? I don't approve of unattended baggage. So that's, to me, a funny poem about trying to hand our life over and wanting to take it back and just asking God to carry our burdens and then 
we keep wanting them back so that we can tell our sob story to ourselves or to others. <laughs> Another 12-step poem is about the seventh step. As I said, there's one for each of the steps, but this is one I think that anyone could relate to. So the seventh step is to ask for the old ways to be removed and to replace them with better principles. And again, I paraphrased what the 12 steps are. Better ways. Knee-jerk, self-defensive barbs and lures are apparently a choice. Supposedly, other ways exist. It's said that one can simply wait for a better response to be delivered by divine download. A superior operating system is on the other side of the tortuous pause, if the sound of one's own breathing can be endured for seven seconds or so. Some say it helps to blink. Others confess to grinning madly in their confidence of the outcome. That poem is really me sharing how I would normally snark back at people, say something kind of mean or what I think is funny but is really self-defensive and that if you just breathe and wait and ask for your old ways and responses to be removed something better kind of comes in sometimes the better is stillness and silence sometimes kind words come out of my mouth that I didn't even know I had in me and yeah and the poem that I want to leave you with my friends is called chairs in a circle and this is from a section in the book called connections and uh, poems that I've written about the importance of connections in my life and in my recovery. That includes you, listeners, and guests of this show. So this poem is called Chairs in a Circle, and I wrote it while I was on a retreat and shared it with the other women in the circle during our sharing circle that night. My dear recovery friends, I've been waiting for you, and you, it seems, have been waiting for me, too. We've stepped into a place in each other's lives to fill an invisible gap, a void unknown before. We soothe an unrecognized irritation, like the noise that goes unnoticed until it stops, and then suddenly, ah, that's better. Until we found this gap, this secret zone, we spent our lives filling in the obvious spots, the places reserved for parents and siblings and friends and neighbors, for lovers and children, for teachers and baristas and gynecologists. Our accountants know every penny. Our hairdressers see the gray roots at the napes of our neck that we can never reach on our own. We thought our lives were full because all the spaces were filled. What more could we possibly need? All of the bases were covered. And then, then, we found ourselves in a new place, a place we came to heal ourselves and found each other. We see ourselves and every person here, gathered for the same purpose, here to restore, here to reveal. We learn this thing called holding space, and harder still, we learn to be held. We've met in the gray area we didn't know existed, a place between ourselves and the world. Our circle has capacity for stunning revelation, a BS-free zone that welcomes brutal honesty and forgives imperfections, yet it does not require regular lunch dates, invitations to our children's wedding, or obligatory niceties other close relationships demand. Sure, you'd take the afternoon off to meet for coffee if I asked, maybe even offer me your spare room for the night, and yet you'd never be offended if I was nearby and didn't call. Some days, back in the land of black and white, when life is a grind and those around me assume I'm just fine, I might wonder if I imagined you. Did this time really happen? Did I sit in the circle and confess that thing never acknowledged elsewhere? I will breathe deeply and remember it all and believe in myself again because you saw me and heard me and allowed me to be me and trusted me to do the same for you. I'll remember that we discovered the space in between, met there, and can return to it any time we need to. We don't follow each other home or engage in everyday life. It doesn't matter to me if you talk too loudly in restaurants or text in a movie theater, whether you bother to use turn signals when you drive. These things that may frustrate our families and friends are suspended here because none of that matters to you and me. What matters is our willingness to step into the gray, into the sacred space we hold for each other and speak the truth. What matters to us is, are you okay? Do you have what you need to get through today? I know now I can turn to any of you and say, help, please see me. Please remind me that I can do this and tell me why I must. 
My loved ones can be the reason I chew with my mouth closed, but you, dear recovery friends, are the reason I live with my heart open. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for being a mirror that reminds me of who I am and all I can be. Thank you for your bravery, for stepping into the place that others can't acknowledge to honor your power and mine. I am grateful we've chosen to be here. That, my friends, is what you mean to me. And I hope that it's what the bubble hour means to you or your recovery circle, your recovery groups, your sober friends, whatever it is. Hang on to it tight. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can write to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com. I will have links in the show notes for my book. If you want to take a look at it, I'd be so honored. If you have bought it and liked it, please review it on Amazon. It helps others find it. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. I will be back with a new guest next week, and we will continue on with our summer interviews. Until next time, take good care. own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame strong just cause you'll keep it on the side it just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride turn the light on turn the light on you can shine when you see old i did that not proud but that was me and when i face it i take back a little dignity i'm not looking for excuses i just want to be free Just want to be free